Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Don't forget, if you like what we do at the Analysis, we really need you to donate. If you can donate monthly, that will help us make the project sustainable. White House Conference on American History on Thursday, September 17th, President Trump attacked the 1619 Project, a series of essays and a conference organized by the New York Times that re-examined America's legacy of slavery. Trump called the project, quote, ideological poison that will, quote, dissolve the civic bonds of America. Against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that if not removed will dissolve, the civic bonds that tie us together will destroy our country. We want our sons and daughters to know that they are the citizens of the most exceptional nation in the history of the world. The basic thesis of many of the participants of the New York Times project was that a driving force of the American Revolution was the defense of the slave system as England moved towards abolition. Trump also called out what he said is left-wing indoctrination in schools and curriculum. The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. Students in our universities are inundated with critical race theory. This is a Marxist doctrine, holding that America is a wicked and racist nation, that even young children are complicit in oppression, and that our entire society must be radically transformed. By viewing every issue through the lens of race, they want to impose a new segregation, and we must not allow that to happen. Trump instead proposed patriotic education applauding a grant awarded by the National Endowment for the Humanities to develop, in his words, a, quote, pro-American curriculum that celebrates the truth about our nation's great history. Trump has also signed an executive order establishing a commission to promote patriotic education, which will be called the 1776 Commission, in contrast with the 1619 Project. At the conference, Trump claimed the left is, quote, attempting to demolish the Constitution and condemn them for, quote, a vicious and violent assault on law enforcement, which he called the universal symbol of rule of law in America. Now joining us to discuss Trump's speech is historian Gerald Horn, who participated in one of the panels held by the 1619 Project. Gerald is the author of many books, including... The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, and also The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America, which is certainly one of the works that Trump considers ideological poison. Thanks so much for joining us, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get into some of the issues of the history, let's talk about the speech and the timing of the speech. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, it's obviously part of Mr. Trump's reelection campaign. 
he's trying to gin up turnout amongst his base, the 63 million who voted for him in November 2016, were disproportionately and overwhelmingly from the Euro-American middle class and working class. And he feels that this is red meat. This is boo bait to the bubbas in order to uh, heighten their turnout to the polls. And I'm afraid to say he may have a point. Well, he may have a point for who knows, maybe it's that 40% of people who are going to vote or register to vote that seem to be a hard core of his support. I don't think we should ever forget that something like 40% of people don't vote. And so they're not included in this kind of polling, usually. I think most of these polls are polling people that are registered to vote. Uh, but that being said, there's certainly millions of people who are you know, hardcore believers in Trump. Whether they all believe in this kind of racism or not, they certainly see him as a vehicle for whatever it is they want, so whether it's you know, to ban abortion or, or something else, or just lower taxes. Uh, but, but that being said, it seems to me the, the, more, the further he goes in this kind of direction, uh, and one could see at the time of the protests after the death, or I shouldn't say death, I should say murder of George Floyd, uh, there was a, a tremendous amount of public opinion in support of those protests. And, and even in the center, even amongst independents, even amongst you know, potential swing voters, there was a certain sympathy and, and outrage against the killing, uh, sympathy for the protests and outrage of the killing. He doesn't seem to care at all about those people. He's like doubling down. And, and, and is, is this part of a strategy which is either win the election based on this kind of overt call to white supremacy or lose and create the conditions for you know, him to create some kind of media platform for organizing a really overt racist fascist movement afterwards, just assuming he leaves if he loses. Well, with regard to the latter point, you may have noticed, noticed the point made by his pardon fixer, Roger Stone, who suggested that if Trump is losing in November, he should confiscate the ballot boxes, declare martial law, nationalize the National Guard. Recently resigned Trump regime official Michael Caputo suggested that Trumpistas should start buying bullets for reasons that appear to be obvious. We should also point to the recent statements by Attorney General William Barr, who has floated the idea of indicting the mayor of Seattle, Washington, because of her alleged failure to crack down on Black Lives Matter protesters. Speaking of the latter, Mr. Barr has suggested to U.S. attorneys from the Atlantic through the Pacific that they consider conspiracy charges and sedition charges with regard to that particular grouping. Likewise, you might have noticed the articles appearing intermittently in the right-wing press suggesting that Black Lives Matter is somehow a creation or close to the Chinese Communist Party, the bait noir of the moment. So this is a very serious turn of events that have been punctuated by Mr. Trump's remarks at the National Archives. Uh, uh, speaking of which, once again, you notice, you noted correctly that a significant percentage of the U.S. electorate does not vote. According to his strategists, they feel that if they can increase 
the turnout amongst those that they consider to be their natural base, then this particular approach will be a winning approach. I should also say that uh, according to the New York Times of September 18, 2020, uh, Mr. Trump, in recent remarks, and this may come as no surprise to many of your astute and alert listeners, he considers himself really to be the president of so-called red state America. Uh, He suggested that if you take out the COVID deaths with regard to so-called blue state America, New Jersey, New York, California, actually the U.S. statistics with regard to mortality does not look that bad. So this speech was consistent with that kind of approach. Uh, That is to say, not seeking to unify, but seeking to divide more sharply with consequences, I'm afraid to say, that are too ghastly to contemplate at the moment. It's an overt defense of white supremacy. He doesn't use the word white supremacy, but he, you know, he comes right up to the edge of the line of that. Um, why now? Well, you know, it's a few weeks before the election. Uh, many of the polls in the battleground states show, suggest that uh, he is lagging behind, uh, beyond the margin of error. That includes uh, Wisconsin. Uh, That includes even Arizona, believe it or not. The race in Florida, which, according to many strategists, he cannot win the election and the Electoral College without winning Florida. The race there is tightening up as well. So once again, I think that he's trying to gin up the turnout within what he considers to be his natural base. And I think as well that it's important to point out that despite what he said, It's really not clear to me, at least, if the 1619 Project and its offshoots or precursors have really struck a chord either with history teachers, certainly not with the historical establishment, many of whom consider themselves to be liberal. In fact, I think that if Mr. Trump had not affixed his signature to those words in that speech, many liberals would have co-signed that particular speech. I think that the 1619 Project and its precursors and offshoots, and that would include the recent play and book by the leading Black intellectual Ishmael Reed, which is a spoof and a send-up of the runaway Broadway hit Hamilton, which has now taken Disney streaming by storm and has made a small fortune for the playwright Lynn Miranda and a big fortune for Disney, uh, which basically portrays the founding of the United States and, and kind of blackface and brownface. I guess they felt that that would make it more acceptable to the largely Euro-American audience. But Ishmael Reed, of course, critiques this particular episode, this particular play musical sharply. And it's consistent, once again, with Black intellectuals who are looking at the United States taking heed of this lurch towards what many consider to be fascism as represented by the book by former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Fascism, A Warning, other books such as by the Yale philosopher Jason Stanley in this same regard. And they're trying to to create or uncover a history that explains the present moment. Now, many historical establishment figures and many historians they are proudly ignorant of the fact that they are blissfully unaware of what's going on today. 
they treat history as a thing in itself. Uh, I uh, equate them to what I call uh, antiquarian doctors. You know, when you go to a doctor, a doctor takes some medical history. They want to know what were the ailments and maladies of your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your grandmother, great-grandmother, etc. And you give the doctor that history, and then you say, okay, doc, what's the diagnosis? What's the treatment plan? And the doctor says, well, I'm just an antiquarian doctor. I'm just interested in your medical history as a thing in itself. I'm not trying to uncover your history so that uh, you can become better or become more effective. And that's how these historians are. Uh, they draw a great wall between the past and the present. I recall one of the most searing critics of the 1619 Project, who I would say is a card-carrying liberal, probably a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, after 9-11, he was on national public radio in the United States giving an interview about his latest book, which concerns a Civil War battle in 1862, which prompts Abraham Lincoln to move towards the Emancipation Proclamation. And in other words, the United States had to change the character of the war in order to win it. And so the host of NPR, with the embers still burning in New York and in the Pentagon, asked him if there are any lessons to be drawn with regard to this impending war on terror. And of course, he says no. You know, He doesn't say, I don't deal with the present, but he, that's what he could have said. And so what I have to say concerns me, it makes me nervous and apprehensive, is that there may be some liberals who feel that Mr. Trump had a solid point to make when he upbraids those who are trying to rewrite the story of the United States of America. Because recall that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Francis Fukuyama, now at Stanford, uh, wrote this now notorious tome, The End of History. Well, you know, the end of history... Capitalism is one, neoliberalism is one. Move on, folks. Well, now historians are suggesting the end of historiography. There's only one possible interpretation for the history of the United States. And that interpretation means downplaying slavery, downplaying genocide against Native Americans, downplaying the fact that by several orders of magnitude, Black people did not side with the slave owners. They did not engage in class collaboration in 1776. They sided with the Redcoats. Many of them subsequently fled to Canada, where their descendants continued to reside. And of course, Canada is a control group because it did not revolt against British rule, remained under the aegis of the crown. And yet today, even those who consider themselves to be radical and socialist tell us that it's not the so-called revolutionary republic we need to look to for that most basic of human needs, which is healthcare. We should look to the non-revolutionary state, that is Canada, for single-payer health care tips. So the United States, in many ways, and its discourses are as entangled as a bowl of spaghetti, and I'm afraid to say that Mr. Trump might be onto something when he made that speech at the National Archives. When you say that some liberals in a different context might agree with what Trump said, and, and, and some have written in and critiqued the 1619 project itself. Still, the New York Times, which is the tribune of the liberals, uh, they did organize the project. Uh, some of the historians that wrote in, to, wrote in to critique the thesis that you and others participants gave of that defense of slave system was a major force driving the American Revolution. 
Um, the New York Times defended that your and others thesis and the editor in chief came out and defended it. Um, and I don't usually have many good things to say about the New York Times, but you have to give them some due on this, don't you? Well, first of all, the New York Times is a market-driven uh, product and project. It has taken notice of the fact that a significant percentage of its potential market happens to be black people. And, and by the way, uh, when Mr. Trump denounces the 1619 Project and its precursors and offshoots, my book sales go through the roof, which leads me to the point that this particular 1619 Project has been embraced across class lines in the black community, uh, from Oprah Winfrey, the billionaire, down to people in the working class community. So the New York Times was onto something when it was trying to increase its market share by sponsoring the 1619 Project, number one. Number two, the black journalists, including Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was the architect of this project, as I have suggested, they're trying to figure out what's going on in this country with this so-called grand democracy, with this sturdy constitution seemingly lurching towards fascism. So they're trying to come up with a new interpretation of the past that is congruent with what they're seeing in the streets today. And I think as well that you need to realize that the top editor of the New York Times, Dean Bacay, uh, happens to be a black American from slave-owning Louisiana and uh, is not a conservative, as represented in the pages of the newspapers that he edits. And so I think if you mix all of those different factors together, you'll be able to understand what I'm suggesting. And then the other point is, I think that the U.S. left and liberals generally, uh, they really lag behind the curve in terms of their understanding of the country in which they reside. Uh, they remind me of teachers of biology who don't take note of the uncovering of DNA in the 1950s. They're still teaching from Charles Darwin's uh, textbook, for example. And for whatever reason, and of course, some of my black nationalist friends think they know the answer, but for whatever reason, they have not kept up with the historiography. They give us these threadbare arguments as to why Trump won. Supposedly, it's all because of Fox News, even though uh, Fox News is part of my cable package and the cable package of other black people. And we don't seem to be influenced by it. We vote against Trump nine to one and the Republicans nine to one. And so... I think that part of the problem is, number one, that the liberals and the left really haven't kept up. Uh, they consider themselves to be political analysts. It's like doctors who don't keep up with the New England Journal of Medicine or, or Lancet. They're not keeping up with the literature and they're not keeping up with the trends. And so therefore, they allow the New York Times black journalists to be to their left and have a deeper understanding of what's going on in this country. I hope you're not including me in that because I talk to you about this stuff all the time. Um, let me add one thing to this. It's not only does much of the liberal uh, and, and other parts of American culture want to detach the history from the present from the point of view of not recognizing the roots of American slave system and American culture and how it the culture itself and how much this is baked into the culture and how much it influences things today. But I think what the, the liberals and others really don't want to face up to and deal with is why this current 
situation reproduces this white supremacy and racism because the current today super exploitation of cheap black labor is so critical to the system. And that, that the issue of the super exploitation in, in all the major urban centers, like, uh, as you know, I lived in Baltimore for a few years and, and there, people are so desperate for work that in a unionized Johns Hopkins surgical room, this is just a, a couple of years ago, somebody could be working for $13 an hour after 14 years of seniority, cleaning surgical rooms and having to take special drugs to ward off uh, various infectious diseases, including HIV. And, and they do that because people are desperate for work in the city. And that exploitation of cheap black labor, and you can include Latinx labor in many parts of the country, is critical to, to wealth creation in the United States. That piece of it rarely gets talked about. And it's, it's, in some ways, it's easier to talk about uh, the, you know, the slave system long time ago and not talk about the kind of current form of it. And one should also include outright slave labor in the uh, prison system throughout the country. Well, most definitely. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Texas. And part of the alleged economical miracle of Texas is that it rests upon the shoulders of immigrant labor, mostly labor of Mexican origin, who are paid next to nothing. And of course, the labor of Black people, with both of those groups being subjected to the horrors of COVID-19. In fact, in the Black community now, COVID-19 is now being referred to as COVID-1619. <laughs> that is to say, connecting it directly to what is said to be the origins of the Black population in North America pursuant to the African slave trade. But I think that the, the liberals also, they, they, they don't even understand recent history, not to mention the history of centuries ago. I mean, for example, uh, if you look at the election of Obama, who, to speak charitably, administered the state and the empire as a kind of centrist. This was being celebrated as an example of post-racialism in the United States of America, how far the nation had come, blah, 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 which then makes it difficult to understand how he's followed by Donald J. Trump without necessarily seeing that the election of Donald J. Trump in some ways is a backlash as some subsequently did come to see, to the election of Mr. Obama. And then you could, could really connect that to the far away past, because as I've tried to point out in some of my books, if you look at the history of settler colonialism in North America, particularly in the South, particularly in a place like South Carolina, uh, which for the longest had a black majority, there was a reigning fear amongst the settlers that there would be a replay of the Haitian Revolution. <laughs> that is to say that the uh, exploited class of enslaved workers would rise up and overthrow the European settlers and take over. And I don't think it's that much of a stretch to suggest that that is a kind of, of psychological play that's still unfolding in the deeper recesses of the psyche of many of the descendants of the settler class, 
which also sheds light once again on the November 2016 election. So no matter how you slice it, no matter how you cut it, be it talking about the recent past or the far away past, it seems that this inability or unwillingness to confront the horrors of the present and the past makes it very difficult for some of our friends to comprehend what's going on in their backyard. I think there's a, another piece to this Trump speech and, and executive order, which doesn't, I, I don't think has received enough attention. Um, I, I did an interview recently with Larry Tai, who wrote the uh, book, uh, Biography of Joseph McCarthy. And the headline of the interview I, did, I, I wrote, uh, McCarthyism, the model for Trumpism. Well, w- one of the pieces of this executive order that Trump uh, signed was that nowhere in the federal government can there be uh, use, I, I don't have the exact language, but essentially banning, and he says in the strongest possible language, critical race theory, right? Uh, these kinds of ideas, banning them from the government, that it's out and out McCarthyism. Now, now we can have a, a witch hunt within the government for people that want to promote this, quote, ideological poison. Well, it's even worse than that because Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas has introduced legislation that would cut off federal funding to any school districts that use the 1619 Project. And with regard to critical race theory, uh, during my ancient past, when I was in the law profession, I was present at the creation of critical race theory. And it's really not associated of Mr. Trump and the critics have suggested with Marxism. In fact, you could see it as a way to develop an approach that could not be grouped with Marxism. I mean, for example, if you look at the writings of one of the architects, the late Harvard professor, Derek Bell, you'll get that idea. And many of us who were to the left of the critical race theorists, in in a sense, used to spoof it. Uh, We used to say, this is critical race theory. Guess what? There's a ruling class in the United States of America, and they're not neutral. The law is not neutral. In fact, the law is structured to reproduce white supremacy. No way, way. So, <laughs> and yet, despite their best efforts to distance themselves from those to their left, somehow they're dragged into the rubric of being part of a so-called Marxist origin theory, which is poppycock, balderdash, and nonsense at best. Well, he has Biden as being captured by the Marxist left. I mean, he's talking to an audience that has no idea what these concepts are. It's just a bunch of labels that he hopes to inflame people with. Well, yes. And uh, as has often been said, few people have gone broke when they seek to suggest that a good deal of the U.S. electorate can be tricked and rooked. And I think, well... I was about to say, I think we're about to get evidence of that on November 3rd, but that, that's going too far uh, because uh, Mr. Trump is behind in the polls. He's behind in the battleground states, many of them. He's behind in many of the swing states. But at, on the other hand, of course, voter suppression is his Trump card, pardon the expression. No doubt. Um, Fareed Zakaria, who I'm not a fan of and supported the Iraq war and otherwise, uh, but he, he laid out an interesting scenario in, uh, a week or two ago. Uh, he, he's, he imagines or 
expects that on the night of November 3rd, Trump will actually win a majority of the Electoral College vote. Oh, my goodness. But then they're going to start to count all the mail-in ballots. Right. That at the end of the counting of mail-in ballots, mail-in ballots, Biden will be significantly ahead. But Trump's going to continue what he's been doing and saying that the mail-in process is a fraud and only what happened on November 3rd should be counted. And that will become the rationale for trying to essentially avoid the results of the election and stay in power. And then I guess it's going to come down to a large extent. Uh, will his fellow Republicans support him in this and or where is the military? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not only where is the military, uh, Edward Luce in the Financial Times of London, in this column of September 8th, 2020, uh, suggests that we also have to look at where is the Secret Service and where is the Capitol Police. And I would add to that litany, where is the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department? I mean, you have to take all of these different uh, armed forces into consideration because I think that there is really a danger that this alleged uh, so-called sturdy democracy with this vaunted Bill of Rights, which, by the way, did not apply to the Black population when it was enunciated, did not apply to the Native American population. In fact, if the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution with regard to the right to bear arms had applied to the Black population, as Mr. Trump might say, believe me, slavery would have ended before 1865. And certainly a strategic goal and ambition of the settlers was to keep arms uh, out of the hands of Native Americans. So in any case, I think that the United States might finally unveil itself and reveal itself as a sort of a shambolic republic with a kind of fraudulently rendered history that Mr. Trump and his remarks is trying to not only reify, but force down the throats of the rest of us. Well, there's no doubt that the African-American vote is going to be critical. And one of the things that sunk Hillary Clinton was the lack of enthusiasm and, and how many black voters simply stayed at home. Uh, you think that's going to change? Well, <laughs> it's hard to say. I, I was struck by the fact that the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees is working with the NAACP on a voter turnout drive. AFSME has a significant percentage of Black membership who work for local and state uh, governments in particular. And then we've taken note of the point that billionaire Michael Bloomberg plans to spend $100 million in Florida for Mr. Biden's campaign, it has been suggested that a chunk of that money should be devoted towards paying the fines of the 774,000 convicted felons in Florida that the voters of Florida decided in a referendum should have their right to vote restored, but then courts have suggested they have to pay fines and court costs before they have that right to vote. It seems to me a wise investment for those who would like to see Mr. Biden prevail would be to encourage Mr. Bloomberg to pay the fines of that 774,000 felon community, which, by the way, is not all black, but 
the way the system works is overwhelmingly and disproportionately black. Yeah, that would have a, a practical effect, probably more than throwing it all into TV advertising. That's for sure. All right. Thanks again for joining us, Joe. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Don't forget, there's a donate button on the website. If you're listening on one of the many podcast platforms, uh, best thing is just come over to the analysis.news and hit the donate button. Thanks again.